Welcome to the Pemberley Podcast, where we discuss Jane Austen and other historical romance adaptations. I'm Jillian. I'm Yolanda. Let's dive in with a fun update. We are participating at an online convention called JaneCon, where we'll be discussing the most recent wave of Jane Austen adaptations in TV and film and their inspirations. Look out for our lecture on our YouTube channel on July 15th. We wanted to take a quick break to shout out a brand and their products that we really enjoy and think you will too. Well Read Company makes products perfect for all book lovers. Their selection of bookworm gifts and literary accessories will have people complimenting you every time you wear it. They have handbags that look like books, including titles like Emma, Sense and Sensibility, Pride and Prejudice, and other literary classics. You can get 10% off your purchase by using our exclusive code with no spaces, the Pemberley Podcast. They ship worldwide, including USA, Canada, and Europe. Visit their website at wellreadcompany.com to browse their products and follow them across social media at wellreadco. Now back to the show. This week we're discussing Queen Charlotte episode 6. We'll discuss the succession crisis happening in modern day Bridgerton and follow Charlotte and George on their journey. Has George at last been cured of his affliction? And will the new Lord Danbury truly inherit his father's estate? We will also discuss the history behind royal births and explain inherited wealth in Regency England. So previously on Queen Charlotte, Lady Danbury got her freedom when Lord Danbury died. The modern queen is demanding that her sons marry princesses, and Charlotte and George deal with the reality of Charlotte being pregnant after she saved him from being literally tortured by Dr. Monroe. The first event of the episode is the succession crisis. I'm, of course, aptly titling it Succession. <laughs> um, I was the first one to come up with that title for such a successful, sure. you know, story. But we're in the modern day, and as per the last episode, Queen Charlotte is not messing around anymore. She has imported a couple of princesses for two of her sons to marry on the same day, and they've done it. And now we wait. <laughs> we wait for a pregnancy. Basically, two of her kids barge in and say, Mom, you need to back off. We're trying our best. Like, we're trying. Yeah. And you've never cared about us or got cared to get to know us. This confrontation really takes Charlotte aback. And so when she's alone with Brimsley one night, she asks, like, I'm a, I'm a good mother, right? Like, I'm great. God bless him. He can be honest at this point in his career. <laughs> yeah, like, who's yes. she going to get that's better than him? And he says, you are an amazing queen. But, like, your whole deal, which is not a flaw, is that you serve the king. Yeah. We all serve the king. And serving the king is not the same thing as serving your children. Like, she thinks for a moment, she's like, Brimsley, you're a human person. Did you ever get married? Did you ever have a family? And he's basically like, who would want to be with me? I'm here. I'm always here. Yeah. And, like, we don't really get a reaction on that one. But it's like, shoot, the queen, it's almost like they're married sometimes. Not yeah. really, but kind of. She never thought to ask him, like, what's your life outside of here? And, like, yeah, he has no life outside of the, the palace. Well, because, like, let's pretend he did do that at some point. Is he going to be like, excuse me, your highness, could I have, like, a week off to get married and, like, go on my honeymoon, please? That's never happened. So later in the episode, we see the fruits of Queen Charlotte's pushy labor in that her fourth son, Prince Edward, and his German wife, Princess Victoria, 
come with good news. She is pregnant. She, we are going to have a royal baby. We're, we're kind of getting a little flash forward, not flash forward when she's like, I think it's going to be a girl, you know, like, I don't know, maybe we name her after her mother, Victoria, <laughs> that could be crazy. So the queen is ecstatic. She's going to have a grandchild. And we're going to pause that here. The rest of the modern timeline kind of takes us to the end of the episode and we don't want to spoil it. Let's dive into history fact, the sort of way that families inherited wealth, like with the eldest son, is probably one of the biggest plot points throughout all of Austen's novels. For the entire history of England, aristocratic estates were inherited based on something called the primogeniture system. It means the eldest boy inherits everything or almost everything of the estate. Yolanda, I've blacked out this part of the outline because I want to ask you, when do you think they stopped operating under the primogeniture system? I'm going to say it was probably surprisingly recent. Maybe under Queen Elizabeth is when it was continued and maybe she stopped it? In fact, you are wrong because this is... (laughs) still the way that the British aristocracy is operating. The primogeniture system that almost kept the Bennet sisters from marrying for love, the system that threw the Dashwood sisters and their mother out of their house is still very much in place today. Wow. So if you are a daughter or not a firstborn son of a duke or an earl or whatever, then guess what? You will not be inheriting your family's ancestral home. It is still going to the oldest boy, which for context, before William and Kate's royal children were born, they changed the law that says that the firstborn son will be the heir just to the firstborn child. Right. They had the foresight to change who will inherit the throne, but not who will inherit the aristocracy's estate. According to the New York Times, until recently, there has been little appetite to change the law, a reflection in part of Britain's inability to decide whether its aristocracy is an essential part of its identity, a quaint vestige of the past, or a little bit of both. Another faction of this system that I wanted to talk about a little bit is called entails. Property that is entailed on the male heirs cannot be inherited by females. Like there was a whole thing put in place so that women could not inherit property. Obviously in in real normal times, women in Britain can inherit things. We, We pretty much can all inherit things now, but for a long time this was an effect. And like the example of this is Mr. Bennett's property is entailed and will go to Mr. Collins who is the next male in line because he does not have a son. I know we talked a lot about the patriarchy in the last episode. And in case you were like, maybe they're fixing it. No, they're not. (laughs) (laughs) Going into the second event, which is the new Lord Danbury. And we're going to follow the romantic social, political endeavors of Lady Danbury and how she is going to survive this crisis in the great experiment. I wanted to bring us into this by talking about the way things were inherited because truly that was the way it always worked. That's how it's working for the ton, for the British aristocracy. And so the question is, do all of these new members to the ton, to the British aristocracy, play by the same rules? When we last left Lady Danbury, she was unsure. She was kind of trying to trick the Dowager Princess into saying that it was so... It's Lady Danbury versus the Dowager Princess Augusta. And we're kind of wondering, like, is she going to completely sell out the queen in pursuit 
of this title and this mm. succession crisis. Because if you think about it, that's the only reason Lady Danbury is valuable to the Dowager Princess, because she's got no one on the inside. She's got no one who talks to and is friends with the Queen. And so that's exactly... You know, that's sort of like where her value is lying right now. Lady Danbury visits the queen at Kew while she's still pregnant. It's this tense moment where they're having tea in the orangery. Charlotte is very much secluded because she's very pregnant. And she's like, any news? Any anything? Also, how are you? Is there anything I can do? That's it. That's the moment. That's the moment (laughs) where Lady Danbury should have burst into tears and been like, I just need help. I need help. But she chickens out once again. She says, nope, uh uh-uh, everything is just fine. I can handle everything on my own. There's not really another moment where the queen is going to be like, anything else you need help with? I feel like she really should have spoken up in this moment, but I think there's just so much that she knows is at play. So she's like, how do I delicately try to deal with this? I think, and I think it is a thing where she's like, I can deal with this on my own, but she actually does need the help of a higher power, in this case, the queen. She does, but just so we're all clear, she's not going to have another private moment with the queen until the end of the episode. Mm. So Lady Danbury is getting called on by Duke Adolphus, who's Queen Charlotte's brother, because I, I think Lady Danbury is grappling with the reality that this might not work. The great experiment may very well have been a vanity project of the queen's um, just to like make herself not look stupid for not knowing Charlotte's race when she brought her over. And she's like, shoot, this could be really bad. There's a real world where my son won't inherit anything. I'm flat broke because of my stupid husband spending pretty much another husband. I mean, logistically, that's the answer. He's got a title of his own. He would like accept all of the Danbury children. They kind of begin a courtship where he's calling on her. He's the new backup plan. Like, I'll just marry this guy. I'll start over. That's how I'm going to provide for myself and for my children. I mean, it's a really good plan because he seems like a nice guy. He seems very into her. So what could possibly go wrong? (laughs) Yeah, and he's not a hundred years old. Yeah. So that's like, wow, I would be already impressed with that. Before we see more of their courtship, though, they start that. And then we have what I think is a pretty iconic dialogue between Lady Danbury and the Dowager Princess Augusta. They're at their normal tea. Lady Danbury is basically trying to move the great experiment forward. The Dowager Princess is pushing back by saying, oh, only the king can make that decision. And it's pretty brilliant because she's like, I could tell the king to do that, or I could not say anything to him at all. And they're back and forth. Lady Danbury breaks down in tears because the Dowager Princess is not budging. She's like, we'll see, we'll see. Like, the future of the succession crisis will depend on what you can tell me about the queen today. And it all becomes too much. The weight of the world is on her shoulders, and she breaks down into tears. And instead of comforting her, giving her a moment of privacy or whatever, the Dowager Princess is like, this will not do. Absolutely not. No crying in my presence. We're not friends. I'm not your mother. We are adversaries. And I like you as an adversary. She's not, she even says, I don't like you, but you're a very worthy adversary. Right. She goes on this whole diatribe. The Dowager Princess's husband, George's father, died very early in George's life. 
and that the king, who is his grandfather, was a terrible, horrible man who would beat her and would beat George, and there was nothing she could do about it because he was the king. She found a way to harness her son's power, and like obviously eventually that guy died, but she was like, I covered my bruises and I soldiered on, and you're going to do the exact same thing. And she pours her some pear German brandy or whatever. (laughs) It's a really tough moment, I think, like... She's not giving Lady Danbury any breaks because she didn't have any breaks. And she's like, this is your life. Stand up. Like, I'm not going to let you, like, break down right here in front of me. She makes her feel like, this isn't appropriate. How dare you cry in front of me? And, I mean, I think Lady Danbury is someone who's going to face a lot of struggle, too, in her own life of trying to reestablish herself and find her way in society. So this is just, like, one of many battles she is going to encounter. And I think as like tough as it is, I think the Dowager Princess is preparing her for that because she's like, you're going to go through this life alone. It's not going to be easy. If she does come for her now, like she may try to come back again. And and I don't know. I think she's like, I need you to be an independent person. I want to fight with you, not fight with you. Kind of the opposite of Charlotte and George's uh, first fight. but (laughs) Fight for me. For me. with Well, she wants for and with. I think the Dowager Princess only wants to fight with Agatha. And I I do think it is this moment where Agatha, it brings it into perspective for her. And she's like, I think this is hard because it's supposed to be hard. Yeah. But it's maybe something like it's not going to be hard forever. I mean, this woman kind of kind of opened up her soul and talked about getting abused by her her son's grandfather, not saying it, but saying like, I had to do some terrible things to get my son to make my son king and to keep it going. And we've heard many of her speeches throughout where she talks about seeing the cracks in George when the pressure was put on him, when his mental illness started to arrive, how she had to watch all that happen and endure. And she's like, it's almost like she's saying, this is just the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> this is just much. the beginning of your problems. Yeah, it's interesting. So then, like, going off that, you have Lady Danbury, who is, like, now trying to step back into her own power, step into that power, and the night of the ball, she actually turns down Duke Adolphus's proposal, and she has this very passionate speech, again, of, like, it's no to royalty, and it's, like, it's time for her to learn to breathe her own air, because... As nice of a guy as this duke seems, she would once again be put into that position of, now everything I do is for him. And she's like, trying to learn how to do all this stuff for herself. Yeah, I mean, Shonda's given us this sort of beautiful, best case scenario in Adolphus. He's handsome, he's kind to her, he's gonna take her away, sweep her off her feet and take care of her kids. He says the Danbury children will be like my own. She'd have to give him more airs. She'd have to learn German. No shade on German, but like <laughs> it's, I, I think she's realizing that she would still have to give up parts of herself in order to make this arrangement work. And she, she would have to leave. She would have to leave. And I think she's like, I think maybe in the beginning an escape sounds kind of nice. It would be like not escaping by herself. It would be to like whatever this man wanted. Like it actually, it reminds me of Lady Denham from the last season of Sanditon where she's all set to marry this guy that she loves, who loves her. And he starts throwing around his husband weight saying, you're going to move to my place. We're not going to be here. You're going to do this. You're going to take my name. And she realizes that she doesn't want any of that. She already has everything she could ever want. 
So Lady Danbury really comes to this realization as he's proposing that this is not something she wants to do again. Yeah. And she even says, she's like, you're amazing. You're perfect. I may very well regret turning you down, but I just, I'm not going to be married to anyone. I can't do this again. We have our final one-on-one moment with the queen. Charlotte really realizes what this experiment means and how she needs to be at the forefront of it. She needs to be setting the examples and she needs to be an open ear to her subjects. She needs to just almost like stop worrying so much about her and her life and realize that she is queen of every subject in England. She wants that. George wants that. They need to make it work. So do British subjects, you know? (laughs) So it's a great moment where she's like, we're going to get through this. We're going to make it happen. I am your ally. Come to me with your problems. It's a really great moment. So let's take a quick pause in the Bridgerton verse to talk about a history fact of royal births. Um, Later on in this episode, Queen Charlotte is going to be giving birth to their first child. That's not a spoiler. That really happened. And so I was just curious, like, what were royal births even like back then? Midwives had to swear not to steal the umbilical cord or the placenta afterwards to use as witchcraft. So they had to, like, take an oath when they got there. Like, I swear not going to use this stuff for witchcraft. But in the medieval and Tudor periods, birthing rooms were designed to be womb-like. So like they'd be kind of soft. There'd be like fabric along the, a lot of tapestries. Even there was like a false low ceiling made of fabric. There was usually one window to provide some ventilation, but it was kept very dark pretty warm and men were forbidden from these rooms bringing it into the regency era royal postnatal mothers were given a drink called coddle which was made up of a thin gruel of oatmeal with wine or ale spices and sugar and this drink along with a diet of chicken broth was supposed to help with the massive blood loss that you went through while giving birth this sounds disgusting (laughs) But it also sounds ridiculous now to be like, oh, you're like bleeding out. Here, have some chicken soup. Oh, here's your gruel with white wine and some spices. It sounds disgusting. And I just, I'm picturing Charlotte drinking this. I'm picturing all of the Bridgerton ladies drinking this disgusting drink. Like, oh, thanks. I'm all better. (laughs) I definitely didn't need anything like massive rest. So that's a little bit of the history and, and some factoids behind royal births. So the final event of our episode is perfection. Charlotte and George have one of their last big romantic Shonda shouty scenes together. Mm. Charlotte has just rescued George from the evil doctor. He is recouping in his observatory. He's done that thing that he does where he locks himself in, takes all his meals there. Charlotte's had it up to here with him and she once again barges in. Basically, George is white fanging her. He's trying to be like, go on, get, I never loved you. Or like, <laughs> not. he doesn't say that, but he he's trying to get rid of her. I think it's very insightful of Charlotte to see that his avoiding her has nothing to do with him hating her and in fact has to do with him loving her and not wanting to accidentally hurt her by being himself around her. He still sees himself as a monster. It's very painful, I think, for both of them to try to learn how to do this. But it's one thing to like learn how to be married to someone you've just met, but another thing to like learn to love each other when 
he wants to still battle it alone and and wants to seclude himself but she's like no i want to be here that's why i keep coming back to you that's why i rescued you his whole life has been about hiding this and and been about trying to keep it a secret and it's been such like a negative thing in his life that he's like this can only be my burden I think he's realizing maybe I don't need to share the burden alone. But also, I think Charlotte doesn't realize what that burden is actually going to mean. It is much heavier on both of them than I think they would have ever anticipated. I think it shows how strong she wants their relationship to be that she thinks that his love is enough. Even in all the face of this, I don't think I would... I mean, I know I'd want to feel that way when I'm 17, but... To just know that he loves you and still have to go through all the stuff that she's about to go through is going to be really hard. Yeah. But it, it kind of re-anchors him. It re-centers him. And he's he's George again. He's, he's Farmer George. He's Astronomer George. And, you know, they're excitedly anticipating the birth of their child. It does kind of beg the question, is George really better? And we see moments where Reynolds is clearly skeptical that this like nice family life is actually the thing that has cured him. Like he he doesn't believe the king is better. Like he knows everyone wants him to be better, but he's not. Charlotte goes into labor and there's this great moment where she's, I mean, she's screaming in pain. All the men are just like standing, like <laughs> loitering outside her door. Lady Danbury steps out and is like, says to George, she wants you. The queen wants you. And so, wow. of course, he's going to his woman. Like, but this is not done. Like, we just learned. Like, men are usually forbidden in the birthing room because womanly stuff is <laughs> Womanly things are womanly happening. Womanly things are happening. This is just one of those moments where I'm like, what even are doctors in this time? Because we've got some doctors, we've got some midwives, we've got Lady Danbury. Essentially, Charlotte's baby is breached, which means the feet are coming out first instead of the head. It's supposed to be head first. But then luckily, George is the only one who knows anything. And he's like, because I've spent so much time on the farm, I've seen this happen with cows. And he literally turns Charlotte's stomach, like turns the baby around. It's very painful. But in the next shot, we have a healthy baby boy. The Dowager Princess is there looking like standing with George holding his little son. And she kind of gives him this look and is like, is he normal? Like, does he look healthy? Essentially, like, do we think he has what you have? And George just kind of has this moment where he's like, this baby is perfection. Like, he's fine. Even though he knows what's kind of ahead for his son, he doesn't want that pressure to be put on him immediately after birth. Which the Dowager Princess, thankfully, is there to do. (laughs) She's the one there to put that pressure on, on all of them. So shortly after the birth... Uh, A fact that we have discussed on this podcast before is that it's customary for the king to open parliament by giving a speech. Since George has been doing better, I mean, it sounds like he's been pretty secluded. Like, he's been like Princess Jasmine from Aladdin, where he, like, doesn't leave the palace walls all that much. And so they've decided he's finally healthy enough. Well, healthy enough, and also parliament is jumping down the Dowager Princess's throat, being like, is this king even a king? He farms Mm. all day. He observatories all day. And so she puts a lot of pressure on him to deliver this speech as king. And unfortunately, he has one of his moments where like he's he says goodbye to Charlotte. She's like, good luck. And he's he starts to shake. He starts to hear that high pitched sound that he hears. And he can't bring himself to get out of the carriage. I mean, he just can't move. And and Reynolds, I mean, he knows an episode when he sees it. So like everyone sees the royal carriage parked at Parliament they turn right back around. 
this is where we have another beautiful, beautiful moment between Charlotte and George because he's ashamed and he he's hiding under the bed. So she comes to find him, gets under the bed with him. His speech here about like only being half a man, mm. half a king, half a husband. Once again, you know, Charlotte is standing by him, you know, and she says that if all they can have is half, then it'll just have to be the very best half. This is again like Charlotte meeting him where he's at. He just continues to hit these low points and it feels like he's like, I'm just never going to rise above this. And she's like, so we will be here together then below it. And I will be here with you in the in these low points, literally underneath the bed and, and they're together. And so even though this, this marriage was like very random Charlotte didn't want it. It ended up being like these two people who really kind of fit together nicely. And like, granted, like this is just a dramatization of their marriage. But the fact that we keep saying is that King George never took a mistress. So there was just a lot of love clearly in their marriage. There was a lot of hopefully respect within their marriage to see that they stood by each other's side through all of this is is the dramatizing this is doing it justice i would think i hope so i hope they really said all of these words to <laughs> each other. exactly these words exactly ripped from their diaries yes <laughs> so the final event here between the two of them is to make up for the fact that george did not show up at parliament they are bringing parliament and court to the palace, which again, we get the impression that that's not something that happens. They don't bring a lot of guests yeah. to George's castle. Well, George hasn't been open before. So I think that's like one thing. It's very frozen of like, open the castle walls. It's also like, they can make their own rules. Like It's not like, oh, it's not allowed. It's like, well, he's the king. He can make the rules right now and say that, yes, parliament can come into the palace. A lot is riding on this ball because this is... George's almost like his coming out into society where he's proving that he is the king. He's not a madman. And it's a smashing success. I mean, he and Charlotte enter at the top of a grand staircase and we're having this moment where we're like, is he going to lose it? And he's not. She just reminds him that it's just the two of them and they have a beautiful dance. Everyone else starts dancing. And there's even a moment of an acknowledgement between Dowager Princess Augusta and Charlotte where she says to her, you make him happy, your majesty. Recognizing her as the true queen she is. Everyone's dancing, including Brimsley and Reynolds on the way, way outskirts of the party standing guard. They're dancing together. And then suddenly it's just old Brimsley dancing alone. I almost cried when I saw this because we don't know what the implications are, but I think we know what the implications are. That he died or, like, was fired. Maybe he wanted to have, like, a life outside of the palace. Who knows? Like, maybe he did marry someone else and... Like, to cover I mean, or something, yeah. At some point, I guess the king didn't need a king's man. It's more like doctors and more, more that sort of thing, you think? Just what do you do? Because, like, for the last ten years of his life, he was just... In that room, we think. He, he's just kind of like sequestered away, doing his own thing. No one's really visiting him. It's not like yeah. he can hold a conversation. That's sort of the high point. Oh, and then also Charlotte reveals that she's pregnant with baby number two. So yeah. <laughs> that's cool. I think that's way less emotional than Brimsley and Reynolds dance. That's baby two of 15. Yeah, 15. 13 <laughs> of which survived to adulthood. Like, yes. big whoop. There's a lot of great speeches in this part of the episode. We get multiple declarations of love. Farmer George turns out to be good for something. The really the last and final scene of this show is like now we've we talked about how 
Charlotte continues to meet George where he's at and they have that moment again where they go underneath the bed and we now see present day Queen with George and he, again like he's doesn't know where he is or, or where who she is she has this moment where she like goes underneath the bed he follows her and you have like this moment of like showing their young selves against their present day selves and it's this really heartbreaking and beautiful moment of like through all of it through all the adversities and struggles and everything like they've been there for each other and even in those tiny moments where yes they finally see each other and they finally see each other for who they are that's what she holds on to after all these years and that's what's getting her through I'm not ashamed to say I cried while watching this final scene because like remembering that like he's the boy that like she initially fell for and when he looks over at her and she's still young and he says like you didn't go over the wall like I'm tearing up just thinking about it it's such a beautiful moment And I think it's just such an absolute, like, it's probably one of the best endings of any show ever. Just the way that we kind of know what happened to them, but, like, they decided that love was worth all the hardship. Powerful stuff. Really great. Really great ending. I don't know if we'll see a second season of this. I know it's a limited series. It feels like a complete story. So I do think there's a really great opportunity now to, like, Explore. I mean, I think we all want to see Violet Bridgerton yeah. and like how that love story came together. So I feel like that would be the next phase. But at least in the Bridgerton series that is to come, we're going to have season three next, which is going to bring us back to present day. We're going to see Penelope and Colin's love story, which has been highly anticipated. We're seeing two characters that we've already met, that we already know, we already love. How are these two friends going to become more than friends there's no date on this yet we're guesstimating like a december release again but that would be the next time we talk about bridgerton i'd like to state for the record because i do want to be proven wrong i don't like colin bridgerton (laughs) right (laughs) that's what i said last i know but like let's just reiterate this for the next time i remember my distinct Dane for Anthony Bridgerton at the beginning of this because of the way that he treated his lover, the way that he even treated Daphne. Like he just was so into himself and like very misogynistic. And he won me over the course of season two. I hope that Penelope comes more into her power than she has been. And I hope that Colin realizes how much he sucks (laughs) and how he needs to win Penelope over. A lot of groveling, I'm sure. I need groveling. (laughs) So thanks for listening. Stay tuned for next week because we have a very special episode where we will finally be talking about the 2005 Pride and Prejudice film starring, of course, Keira Knightley, Matthew McFadden. And we will be joined by special guests, New York Times bestselling romance author Allie Hazelwood and debut author Julie Soto. So stay tuned for that episode. You can follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and support us on Patreon at The Pemberley. And you can email us with comments and questions at thepemberleypodcast at gmail.com. Thank you.